0: Chapter 3. Constantinople Against the Hatred of Certainty An interview with actor Robert Walker Jr. produced a very interesting comment. After a film, Walker retreats to his new Malibu home with his wife, Ellie, a former June Taylor dancer he married in 1961, and their two children, Michael Four and David Three. We have a beachy home, Walker says. We're beach people, sun, sand, and scuba. But if this house ever takes us over... Ties us down, well, we'll burn it down. Granted, that this actor's statement may well reveal him to be a poser, but the fact that he found it a merit to pose as one dedicated to a hatred of roots is significant. Everything associated with roots and certainty is today despised by the self styled new elite. Marriage, morality, family, law, order, certainty, and above all, Christianity are hated with a passion. Man's freedom is to avoid all certainty except himself. The quest for certainty is seen as the quest for death. Life for these men means uncertainty and rootlessness. One student radical has remarked, I hate people who know anything. The hatred of certainty is a major passion of existentialist man. This hatred of roots and of certainty is basic to revolutionary activity. The revolutionist destroys things of value precisely because they have a value apart from him. Only what he decrees can stand. The revolutionist destroys roots, values, and laws because they speak of certainty, and he is at war with certainty. This is the basis of revolutionary destruction. It seems senseless to those who fail to realize that destruction is basic to revolutionary faith. This hatred of certainty was a major factor in the Roman Empire and its anti-Christian, and it was a major aspect of the infiltrating humanism then and now. The humanistic parties did everything possible to bring uncertainty to the faith, to render vague the doctrines of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, to cloud with uncertainty the doctrines of creation, salvation, and judgment. The hatred for doctrinal certainty was intense and dedicated. But this hatred of certainty is a pretense and a mask for the advancement of a new certainty. Not God, but man. It is part of the quest for a humanistic certainty. A man thus who is ready to burn down a house if it ties him down says in effect that there can be no responsibility binding him except his desire to indulge himself. If his marriage or family ties him down, then he will also burn it down. His freedom is to be irresponsible to every God-given responsibility as a way of asserting his independence and his own Godhood. It was this hatred of biblical certainty that the early councils had to war against. The ecumenical councils of the early church were in their purpose and nature very different from the modern councils and ecumenical efforts of the church. First, the early councils had as their primary purpose the defense and establishment of truth, not unity. Unity had to be established on the foundation of truth, not truth as a product of unity. The councils came together for the purpose of conflict, the battle of truth against error, and any unity on other than the whole truth of scripture was anathema. Second, the concern of the councils was primarily the faith, not the church. Institutionally, the church suffered because of the conflict, but theologically it flourished and ensured its survival and growth. The modern ecumenical movement and modern councils are thus in purpose and work in direct contrast to the early councils. Their concern is with unity and with the institution, not the faith, primarily. The early church came to Nicaea already battle-scarred from the struggle with the enemies without and within, struggles with the empire and with the heretics. The fathers went to Nicaea with the marks of battle, arms made useless by the application of red-hot irons to the nerves, crippled and maimed of body. Some had the right eye dug out, others had lost the right arm. The post nicene battle was similar, but more subtle. Now the empire was an ostensible ally, but it was usually an ally of the heretics within the church against the Orthodox faith. Arianism was, according to Schaff, first deistic and rationalistic, whereas Athanasianism was theistic and supernaturalistic. Arianism proceeded from human reason. Athanasianism from divine revelation. Second, Arianism associated itself with the secular political power and the court party. It represented the imperiopopal principle, and it persecuted the church and denied to it an era of independence from the empire, whereas the Orthodox party was concerned with the integrity of the faith. The Second Ecumenical Council, the First Council of Constantinople, met in A.D. 381 to meet the continuing challenge of the humanists who were attempting to erode the certainties of the faith. The men who gathered had suffered severely at the hands of the apostate churchmen in league with the empire. The Council's Synedictal Letter of 382 cites these sufferings in brief. Our persecutions are but of yesterday. The sound of them still rings in the ears alike of those who suffered them and of those whose love made the sufferers pain their own. It was but a day or two ago, so to speak, that some released from chains in foreign lands returned to their own churches through manifold afflictions. Of others who had died in exile, the relics were brought home. Others again, even after their return from exile, found the passion of the heretic still at the boiling heat and slain by them with stones as was the blessed Stephen, met with a sadder fate in their own than in a stranger's land." others worn away with various cruelties still bear in their bodies the scars of their wounds and the marks of Christ who could tell the tale of fines of disenfranchisements of individual confiscations of intrigues of outrage of prisons In truth, all kinds of tribulation were wrought out beyond number in us, perhaps because we were paying the penalty of sins, perhaps because the merciful God was trying us by means of the multitude of our sufferings. For these all thanks to God, who by means of such afflictions trained his servants and, according to the multitude of his mercies, brought us again to refreshment. We indeed needed long leisure, time, and toil to restore the church once more, that so, like physicians healing the body after long sickness and expelling its disease by gradual treatment, we might bring her back to her ancient health of true religion." It is true that on the whole we seem to have been delivered from the violence of our persecutions and to be just now recovering the churches, which we have for a long time been the prey of the heretics. But wolves are troublesome to us who, though they have been driven from the fold, yet harry the flock up and down the glades, daring to hold rival assemblies, stirring seditions among the people, and shrinking from nothing which can do damage to the churches. This is not the language of conciliation. The foundation of Constantinople's ecumenicism was not smoothing out differences and building bridges to the opposite, but on the basis of the uncompromising faith, to drive out the enemy and to allow him no entrance save conversion. The enemies were plainly termed wolves. They had to become lambs before they could be approached peaceably. The synodical letter summarized the theological work of the council. This is the faith which ought to be sufficient for you, for us, for all who rest not the word of the true faith, for it is the ancient faith, it is the faith of our baptism, it is the faith that teaches us to believe in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. According to this faith there is one Godhead, power and substance of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, the dignity being equal, and the majesty being equal in three perfect hypostases, i.e., three perfect persons. Thus there is no room for the heresy of Sibelius by the confusion of the hypostases, i.e. the destruction of the personalities. Thus the blasphemy of the eunomians, of the Arians, and of the Numatomachi is nullified, which divides the substance, the nature, and the godhead, and supersedes on the uncreated, consubstantial, and co-eternal trinity, a nature posterior, created, and of different substance. We moreover, Preserve, unperverted, the doctrine of the Incarnation of the Lord, holding the tradition that the dispensation of the flesh is neither soulless, nor mindless, nor imperfect, and knowing full well that God's word was perfect before the ages, and became perfect man in the last days for our salvation. This statement summarizes both the enemies of the faith and the word of the council. The word tradition is used by the synodical letter in the sense of the biblical faith. The first heresy cited by the council as excluded by the expanded creed was the heresy of Sibelius, or Monarchianism. Sibelianism had Gnostic and Judaizing tendencies. It held to a strict monotheism or Unitarianism as against Trinitarianism. Sabellianism denied any distinction between the Father and the Son. There was but one person. God is the monad, the original substance inoperative and unproductive until it develops the father is wordless i.e cannot beget the son since god is by definition wisdomless and wordless i.e basically an unconscious original substance he is the silent god the universe as well as the Son, are products of dilation or expansion in god's substance and at the end this substance contracts so the creation disappears Thus, if the monad becomes a dyad or a triad, it is simply the one original substance that has expanded, and the expansion is temporary and transitory. Sabellianism was thus basically pantheism, and its God simply the abstract substance which evolves itself into the world of reality. Some of the fathers traced the doctrine of Sabellius to the Stoic system. Sabellianism and the related Marsilians were condemned by the Council in Canon 1 constantinople emphasized the reality of the trinity of one god and three persons instead of an abstract concept of original substance the council affirmed the very personal god instead of a silent god the council declared the god of revelation the universe instead of being an expansion of god is his creation who was one god the father of all governing creator of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible The second heresy countered at Constantinople was the newer forms of Arianism, humanism for one. Humanists, leader, founder, and bishop of a sect of Arians, in effect denied the divinity of the word of God the Son. In the name of exalting the Father, humanism denied divinity to the Son, but the Father it claimed to worship was an incoherent God who could not express himself. Humanism was thus a practical denial of the Father and the Son. The son for Eumenus was only a creature, and God was simply a remote substance. Canon 1 of the council condemned the Eumenans and the Fontanians, followers of Marsilius' disciple, Fontanius, who held that Jesus was a mere man. The Constantinople Creed, an expansion of the Nicene, made it emphatically clear that Jesus Christ is truly God. The third kind of heresy condemned was that of the Semi-Arians, Macedonians, or Numatomaki. The Numatanaki, from Numa (spirit) and Makumai (to speak evil against), were followers of Macedonius, bishop of Constantinople, who declared the Holy Ghost to be only a creature. With regard to the Son, the Semi-Arians and Macedonius avoided calling him either co-substantial with the Father or very God, and also avoided calling him a creature. The denial of the deity of the Holy Ghost was a denial of any eminence in God. Thus, even if the Macedonians had been orthodox in their doctrines of the Father and the Son, which they were not nor could be, for the doctrine of the Trinity is a unified whole, they still would have left God irrelevant because, unrelated to the world, God would have been the holy other who could not truly reveal himself to man or operate in the universe. This absolutely transcendent God would also be a hidden God, a God without revelation, and wholly cut off from man. He would thus be irrelevant except as a limiting concept, and the practical consequence of such a God is that there is no God but man. The Pneumatomaki held that not only was the Holy Ghost a creature, but he was also an emanation from Jesus Christ, himself a creature. It was a part of the Arian Creed that the Holy Ghost was a created being. To render Christ and the Spirit emanations was to open the way to making man an emanation, since the uniqueness was denied in favor of an inherent process, emanation. The resemblance to Gnosticism was obvious. Athanasius, who named the Numatimaki, also called them tropiki because of their figurative interpretations of scripture. Since God was for them, there was no word from God, and the Bible could thus contain only hints, figures suggestive of God, but never a true revelation. To Nicaea's I believe in the Holy Ghost, Constantinople added, The Lord and life-giver, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, who spoke through the prophets. The Holy Ghost is thus clearly God, the third person of the Trinity. Fourth, Constantinople condemned in Canon 1 and its creed, the Apollinarians. The Apollinarians had, in attempting to expound Nicene doctrine, emphasized Christ's deity, but partially denied his true humanity. Apollinarius was thus more than halfway into Arianism, because his position was in, in fact a denial of the Incarnation. Moreover, Apollinarius believed that a complete human nature in Christ would have implied sinfulness, which was in essence the pagan belief that creatureliness, or finitude, is sin, whereas the biblical faith sees man as a creature originally created holy good. Not finitude, but the moral transgression of God's law is sin. If finitude be seen as sin, then salvation of necessity is logically deification. However, well-meaning the intentions of Paul and Arius may have been. His presuppositions were Hellenic and anti-Christian. The statement of Nicaea concerning Christ's incarnation was thus expanded to make emphatic the reality of the incarnation. Fifth, Constantinople added to its declaration of the co-substantiality of the Trinity, its canon, five, a confession of the unity of the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Subordinationism was thus condemned, and the unity of the Godhead affirmed. A comparison of the Creed of Nicaea, Creed of 318 Fathers, with the expanded Creed of 150 Fathers of Constantinople is of interest. Leith's version of Nicaea reads, the Greek text being translated, and hence the plural pronoun, We believe in one God, the Father all-governing. Creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, as only begotten, that is, from the essence, reality, of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence, reality, as the Father through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered, and the third day he rose and ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge both the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. But those who say, once he was not, or he was not before his generation, or he came to be out of nothing, or who assert that he, the Son of God, is different, homostasis, or usia, or that he is a creature, or changeable, or mutable, the Catholic and apostolic church anathematizes them. The Expanded Creed of Constantinople reads, We believe in one God, the Father of all governing, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, Begotten, not created, of the same essence, reality, as the Father, through whom all things came into being, who, for us men, and because of our salvation, came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and rose on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, his kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life-giver, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son, who spoke through the prophets, and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The original form of the Nicene Creed concludes with an anathema. Canon 1 of Constantinople 1 did the same thing. The modern distaste for anathemas is a disavowal of the faith. No man can affirm a faith if he affirms its opposite, nor can he defend a faith without waging war against its enemies. No unbeliever or heretic can be converted unless he first be recognized as an unbeliever rather than a brother under the skin. The anathemas are thus basic to creedalism. Constantinople in AD 381 spelled out the certainties of the faith against attempts by humanism to render it uncertain. Humanism is again dedicated to the same desire, as always, to reduce scripture to a maze of uncertainties, myths, figures, and symbols. Its purpose is to free man from biblical faith, to burn down the house of faith so that man may be totally rootless and godless. But the flight from God's certainty is futile— in that every fiber of man's being, having been created by God, witnesses to God. Romans 1, 18-25 The actor Walker said, But if this house ever takes us over, ties us down, well, we'll burn it down. His plan is futile. No man can burn down God's creation. Existentialist man is a myth, and the only burning existentialist man shall know is God's burning.